you know, Breonna Taylor was a black woman and we live in a, a world of hierarchy and sort of the, the lower the identities um, that make you up are, the lower they rank in the society, the harder it's going to be to get your needs met um, in life or, you know, in her case, in death. On Wednesday, September 23rd, a Kentucky grand jury indicted Brett Hankison, one of three white Louisville police officers involved in the killing of Brianna Taylor, a 26-year-old black medical worker. Hankison was charged with wanton endangerment, a low-level felony, for blindly shooting 10 rounds into her apartment during a drug raid in March. No drugs or money related to drugs were found during the raid. The other two officers who also fired shots during the botched raid were not indicted. It's one of several police killings that has fueled ongoing demonstrations across the country since the end of May. This is Fiat Vox, a Berkeley News podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs. I'm Ann Bryce. We spoke with Savala Triptinsky, director of the Felton E. Henderson Center at the UC Berkeley School of Law, about the decision in the Breonna Taylor case, the elusive nature of racial justice, and how the details surrounding Taylor's murder are all too familiar. You know, I was sitting at my laptop and saw the headlines, and I just felt my body um, sort of release and exhale. Um, It was a reminder that, you know, we experience these questions of injustice and of belonging um, and of safety physically. You know, we experience them in our bodies. And um, I felt just a, a bit of release and realized how tightly I'd been sort of clenched against um, the possibility of there being no kind of atonement or accountability. And then, you know, uh, that release I felt physically kind of turned into a slump um, as it set in that the charge, you know, is a pretty light one and only one officer was charged. And that familiar feeling of, you know, too little, too late, of not really getting what you need um, set in. As an attorney, she says she wasn't surprised by the decision, given that the system in place in this country tends to favor police and protect them from accountability. As a person, though, um, the fact of the charge is upsetting, disappointing, angering, all of those things. And so I felt the exhaustion of forbearance and abiding and feeling again and again that even when you get justice, it's kind of a half step. Um, It's a measure of justice. It's not the whole thing. Treptinsky says that after Taylor's killing, she began to wrestle with the sense that so many people of color do, that the more things change, the more they stay the same. 
and she was reminded of a murder so similar to Taylor's that happened in her own family to her great-great-grandmother. You know, I was taking walks in my neighborhood to try and decompress at the end of, you know, the Zoom workday and just found myself over and over and over thinking about the ways that what happened to Brianna Taylor, you know, being killed in her home uh, by law enforcement as a black woman mirrored what happened, you know, hundreds of years ago to my great, great grandmother. Her name was Laura. I'm not sure exactly why she, you know, or how she got to Texas, um, except that her husband's work was there. Um, she lived there with her husband and her children. And, and um, when she was pregnant, one day a crew of Texas Rangers approached her house and, you know, essentially a crew of law enforcement. Um they suspected incorrectly that she was harboring a black man who was suspected of committing a crime. Don't know anything about the crime he was suspected of committing um, or whether he did it or not, but he was not in the house. They thought that he was and, and he was not. They um, asked to enter the house. You know, they may have been more of a demand than a request. We don't know, but one can imagine and she she said no she did not want them to come into the house her children were there she was alone because her husband was at work and um she was she was shot upon refusing them entry one of the rangers or perhaps more of them um shot her through the screen door and killed her and uh the child uh, that she was pregnant with about what it must have been like for her and what she must have felt standing you know on the porch with her screen door and I sort of tried on a lot of different emotional states for her um kind of as a way of humanizing her to myself and as a way of creating a counter narrative to this sort of relentless story of black sadness and black pain um I imagine her you know, with her chin up being strong and feeling courageous in that moment, um, as often as I imagine her being terrified. Um, yeah, we'll never know. You know, I, I, I will, we'll never know. We'll never know. She says that while there are practical ways to address the systems that we have that could help prevent this kind of tragedy from happening again, like changing how we fund and resource the police, it's not going to be enough. The real work, she says, will take changing society's underlying belief that Black life is inferior, a belief that has persisted for centuries. You know, the real work, I think, happens on a deeper level. It happens in the realm of morals and beliefs and ethics because institutions you know they exist as a reflection of what people believe Uh, the whole point of institutions and systems is to kind of make the beliefs that a society has operational right 
Um, and so you can change an institution, but if you don't change the belief that animates the institution that sort of gave birth to it, that, that, that sustains it, um, then another institution will pop up and it might look a little different, but it will still reflect and carry out those beliefs. If you think about chattel slavery in this country and the hundreds of years of that system, you know, the basic underlying belief, there were many, but the basic underlying belief um, was that Black life is inferior and that um, it can and should be used and controlled, right, as if it were um, unequal to white life. So that's, that's kind of the basic underlying belief. The institution of chattel slavery eventually becomes untenable and we get rid of it. But the belief doesn't really change deeply enough or broadly enough. And so following the end of the institution of chattel slavery, you have the popping up of um, the black codes and convict leasing and Jim Crow, right? Um, new systems, new institutions that reflect fundamentally the same beliefs that animated the old one. You know, time marches on and then Jim Crow and convict leasing and the black codes become untenable and, and we dismantle them, they disappear. But the belief doesn't change, that underlying belief in the inferiority of black life does not change. And so new institutions pop up, right? And what do they do? Well, they don't do exactly what the old ones did because they look a little different, but they still um, they still respond to and reflect that underlying belief. And so we get, you know, the war on drugs, incarceration rates skyrocketing, and the criminalization of poverty and the carceral state, you know, exploding in ways that target black and brown communities. Right now... In this moment, we're looking at these institutions, this most recent set of institutions and saying, you know, this has got to change. These systems don't work um, and we may well be on the road to dismantling them. However, if the underlying belief doesn't change, there will simply be a new institution that follows uh, the sort of carceral state that we have right now but reflects the same beliefs around the value of black life. Um, which is why I say, you know, you need both. You need the targeted practical change for this to end. And you need the, I think, more difficult, um, more long-term, more painful, uncomfortable change that happens on the level of belief and morality. And um, when we have a surge in both of those places for a sustained amount of time, then I think you start to approach a point where transformation is possible, where transformative change is possible. Um, and I hope, I hope that we're heading to that point. I really do. 
After the decision in Taylor's case was announced on Wednesday, demonstrators poured into downtown Louisville and in other cities across the nation to protest police brutality and continue their fight for racial justice. Treptunsi says that it's been encouraging to see more white people involved in the protests and that in order for our society to evolve, it's essential for white people to be part of the fight. That's a reason to be hopeful and to celebrate because, you know, Black and brown people have been protesting our mistreatment, our our torture, our, our murder, our trafficking um, for centuries since it began. You know, so we have we have always been doing this work. Um, white people have not always been doing it alongside us and and with us. So to see more white people engaged is is fantastic, and it's absolutely necessary um, if we're going to to evolve. At the Social Justice Center, Treptinsky works with law students, exploring how they understand race and racism, and how we can try to release ourselves from the grip of racism and racial hierarchy in the U.S. And when I say how we try to do that, I you know I do mean all people. I mean black people, white people, everybody in between, because we're all impacted by it. The impact is different for people who are black and brown than it is for people who are white. Um, but we're all, you know, we're all impacted by it. So there's work for everyone to do. And there's all kinds of work to do. You know, this is this is kind of an all hands on deck moment, I think. Um, and it's it's an all hands on deck project, right? This moment will fade, but we'll still need all hands on deck, right? Like once the, the news cycle has moved on. And she says, we're all capable of doing the work, of rising to the occasion and fighting for what we believe in, learning as we go. Heroes are just people who do heroic things, right? There's not, there's not um, something extra human or more special about them than the rest of us. We all have that capacity if we're, if we're in a moment that calls for it. And if we can, if we can kind of manage to see ourselves that way, you know, that's also a pretty inspirational thing to remember that we don't have to arrive to the moment fully prepared, right. And with full faith and full courage, um, we build those, those capacities through engaging with the work I love that idea. And I, I mean, gosh, if, if there were a time that that kind of idea was more apropos than right now, like, I can't imagine what time that would be, um, you know, but I love the idea that we can arrive at a, at a momentous moment as we are, and we can gain, we can actually gain what we need to meet the moment through the process of meeting it. In July of 2021, Simon & Schuster is publishing Triptinsky's first book. It's a collection of personal essays about race, living in the body of a Black woman, and what it's like to be on the inside and the outside at the same time. For Berkeley News, I'm Ann Bryce. You can subscribe to this podcast, Fiat Vox, spelled F-I-A-T-V-O-X, and give us a rating on your favorite listening app. Also, check out our other podcast, Berkeley Talks, that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can find all of our podcast episodes on Berkeley News at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts.